In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, the eyes of the political world now turn to New Hampshire with its primary just a few days away. We get a preview with Christian Science Monitor Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman. Then, Brian Clark, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, discusses rising Mideast tensions with continued U.S. airstrikes against Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen in response to their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Plus, with Friday's annual March for Life and the anniversary of the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision coming Monday, National Public Radio political correspondent Sarah McCammon discusses the role abortion policy will play in the upcoming election. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And I'm Sean, a C-SPAN producer, and we'd like to tell you about Word for Word, our evening newsletter that I write each day. If you follow politics and policy, we think you'll also like reading Word for Word. Think of it as your evening briefing on Washington's most important stories delivered straight to your inbox. Find out what happened on Capitol Hill, the White House, and see video highlights. Join our informed community. Subscribe to Word for Word today at cspan.org slash connect. Go deeper on the day's important stories. Subscribe now to Word for Word at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Now, Christian Science Monitor, Washington Bureau Chief Linda Feldman, who's covered every presidential election since 1996, gives us a preview of Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. We started by asking what she's watching for in the next few days. Just watching to see what the arguments are. Um, you know, can anybody uh, make say or do anything that changes the dynamic? You've got Donald Trump um, doing a lot of events. Uh, you know, he was in, in court yesterday for the E. Jean Carroll case, which you might think would be a distraction from campaigning in New Hampshire. But, but him facing multiple legal challenges is actually uh, a part of his campaign. I mean, he's kind of running from court, the courtroom. Um, you know, can what kind of crowds do they draw? I saw um, on Tuesday night, uh, Donald Trump uh, had a massive crowd in Atkinson, New Hampshire. I went to the Nikki Haley event last night in Bretton Woods, um, and she she had a good crowd. I mean, it was, it was but it was a it was a smallish room, but they packed she packed the room. I'd say a couple hundred people there. Um, I'll, I'm going to see DeSantis this afternoon. We'll see what kind of enthusiasm he draws. I'm watching mainly for what independents are are thinking. Uh, I saw I talked to a lot of uh, undeclared. What, what is it called in New Hampshire? Non uh, non party affiliation. So uh, there were there were Democrats in the room looking at Nikki Haley and independents as well as as Republicans. The other thing about New Hampshire is they're not having a serious primary here. Joe Biden decided that the Democratic primary process should start in South Carolina. And thus, he has spurned New Hampshire. So the Democrats are deciding, uh, do they play in the Republican primary, which is a real primary, or do they write in Joe Biden so that he's not embarrassed by a weak showing here? Because they're having the primary here, like it or not. Linda, can you talk a little bit about the, the difference between Iowa uh, voters and New Hampshire voters, both in their politics and in their demographics? Right. So... The, the two states are similar in that they have um, very predominantly white populations. Um, but in some ways, that's where this, and, and they're both smaller states. Uh, but uh, Iowa is, is much more conservative. It's a solid red state. 
uh, in its statewide voting patterns, whereas New Hampshire is a, is a battleground state. Um, I was just looking at the registration numbers here. The largest party in, in New Hampshire is actually undeclared. Um, and then, then you've got Republicans, Democrats, about evenly divided. Iowa is very Republican and very um, and and a large uh, evangelical Christian community, which was uh, part of who Ron DeSantis was was wooing. Um, uh, Nikki Haley is herself a person of faith, but she didn't really play that card. She's playing more the the New Hampshire mainstream Republican. Um, uh, direction and also new hampshire also has a, a strong libertarian um bent whether whether it be um the issue of guns gun ownership gun control they don't they don't want gun control um and, or abortion rights um the governor of new hampshire John, uh, chris sununu is a, a moderate republican um endorsed nikki haley uh is i'd say fairly liberal on abortion rights. He's very popular, um, but he's retiring at the end of his term. Um, but that was, uh, you know, that was a good get for Nikki Haley. He's been, he didn't just endorse her. He's been going with her from event to event. He's a, he's a very dynamic speaker, introduces her, uh, sticks around, poses for pictures, um, as does she, of course. Uh, so, Linda you know, I, if I had yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, Linda, I wanted to show you, uh, since you mentioned um, the uh, uh, Iowa voters, the um, Hill has this article. It says almost two thirds of Iowa caucus goers say Biden 2020 win was not legitimate. That's according yeah. to entrance polls. What do you make of that number? That was just absolutely stunning. I mean, it just really demonstrates uh, how much that argument has penetrated uh, voters through whatever media they're watching and, and from Donald Trump directly. Donald Trump is focusing a, a serious part of his campaign on his his assertions that the 2020 election was stolen and that he is trying to vindicate himself and that by extension, he's you know, he's 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 his, I am your retribution, he says, I you meaning my supporters. Um, and I, I was talking to a Trump supporter here yesterday, not at the Nikki Haley event, but uh, actually a friend of a family member um, who uh, it's a, you know, a New Hampshire Republican, solid Trump supporter. And he, he was iffy about Trump at the beginning of the cycle. But with all these uh, all these efforts, all these all these legal cases against Trump really uh convinced him that the that the establishment is out to get Donald Trump and now he's a solid Trump supporter. So um, it isn't just the, the idea of a rigged election in 2020. It's the larger uh, uh, the larger scheme of uh, the establishment trying to get Trump, whether through a rigged election or through court cases. That was Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor. Next, an update on the rising tensions in the Mideast with Brian Clark a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. I want to actually start with Iran. Right. Um, earlier this week, they launched strikes against Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan. Right. What is going on? What's their end game? What are they trying to achieve? So Iran's trying to establish itself as a, as a regional power uh, in the Middle East, which is something that's been doing for uh, the past couple of decades. So they've been working primarily through proxies uh, like the Houthis, uh, in Yemen, but also uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, 
uh, and uh, some of its uh, sympathizers in Iraq. So what uh, Iran is trying to do is use these proxy groups and, and use its own military, uh, the IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, to uh, force its neighbors to uh, be on the defensive, you know, to establish itself as the the company or the, the country with the freedom of action that's able to uh, drive the security competition uh, in the region. Um, and they're trying to push back on efforts by these other countries to, to rein them in. Now, Pakistan's a nuclear power. Right. Um, Iran hit the Balochistan area of uh, Pakistan. Pakistan responded today, right. and Iran is um, uh, announcing that uh, 10 people have been killed mm -hmm. in that where does this go? Is this right. now going to be an Iran-Pakistan issue? There's going to be, well, there's always been sort of an element of that. So the Balochistan region is somewhat disputed. So it's another area where you have a disputed border region between, in this case, Iran and Pakistan. It's in the southern area uh, of Pakistan that's just south of Iran. So um, that area has been somewhat contested. And so Iran is trying to flex its muscles and force Pakistan to defend that border area. Um, the same way that you know, Iran has been trying to uh, attack Iraq over disputed islands in the, uh, in the Persian Gulf, as well as pushing back on uh, Saudi Arabia via the Houthi rebels. So this is all of a piece uh, of Iran's efforts to try to expand its, its uh, field of uh, control or its, its span of control uh, in the Middle East. Um, and in this case, it's obviously decided to take action against a nuclear armed power, which is uh, a big step up, you know, because in the past they've been, you know, mainly just working through the proxies against other countries. But this direct action against Pakistan puts its military and Pakistan's military uh, in direct confrontation, which is new. It sort of suggests that either the Iran leadership feels emboldened because of its success with the Houthi rebels and with Hamas in uh, Israel, uh, or maybe they feel a little bit on the defensive because of their internal challenges, because there's been a series of recent um, uh, protests and, and instability and terrorist attacks inside Iran. So they're both succeeding overseas, but at home, things aren't great. And so that might be part of this as well as an effort to try to generate an external enemy for the country to rally around. Let's talk about the Red Sea. Um, the, the U.S. has launched several strikes right. against the Houthis for mm -hmm. their attacks on commercial vessels right. and Navy vessels. How effective have those been? So the, the Houthis' attacks have not been very effective, uh, but that's been, been because of a, a very formidable uh, defensive effort on the part of the U.S. and its allies. So uh, the Houthis have launched a lot of attacks. They've struck a couple of container ships uh, with minimal damage uh, and no loss of life as far as we can tell. Um, but what, uh, what the cost has been to defend against those has been the U.S. has had to maintain several destroyers deployed in the Red Sea. Um, other countries have had to join in. Uh, it's a substantial outlay in terms of personnel uh, and uh, naval presence. Also, the U.S. is having to expend a lot of surface-to-air missiles to shoot down these relatively inexpensive drones. So Houthi, the Houthis arguably have been successful because what they've done is pin the U.S. down, forced the West to respond, and forced the West to expend effort and money uh, in the defense of Israel, which is really, you know, the idea here is to, to continue to, to disrupt the efforts to back up Israel and its, its war against Hamas. Has the U.S. been effective? Uh, the U.S. has been effective in that it has defended against these attacks, and, and the Navy has done, you know, uh, good, good work in terms of showing its ability to do air defense. You know, the downside, though, is that the systems they're using, the capabilities they're using, were really designed for a much more uh, capable threat. You know, the, the Soviets in the Cold War era uh, and now the, the Chinese in the new era. 
Um, and so they're using these really expensive uh, surface-to-air missiles that cost a million dollars each to shoot down drones that cost you know, $100,000 or less in most cases. Um, so that, that cost mismatch is going to be something that starts to become a problem for the U.S. Uh, going forward. You can't sustain that level of effort. The U.S. has redesignated the Houthis as a terrorist group. Uh, that happened yesterday. Why does that matter? And why were they taken off the list initially? Yeah, great question. So the Houthis were taken off the list um, originally as part of an effort to negotiate a, a truce or a settlement between the Houthis and the Yemeni government in the civil war that's been going on in Yemen for about eight or 10 years at this point. So Saudi Arabia has been fighting these rebels on behalf of the Yemen government. Um, and so there's been this longstanding you know, conflict happening down in the south of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so the attempt was to take the Houthis off the terrorist list, uh, work with Saudi Arabia to negotiate a settlement and end that civil war uh, in Yemen. Um, obviously, that's not panned out, and the Houthis have decided to both accelerate their efforts against the Yemeni government, but more importantly, to start this whole series of attacks against commercial shipping and U.S. naval forces in the Red Sea. So that, that truce and that, the end of that conflict is now off the table, probably. So putting them back on the terrorist list makes sense. Um, and that now allows sanctioning of, of some of the financial uh, networks that they might be able to employ to uh, be resourced uh, largely through Iran, but other other proxy or other supporters have, have been providing resources to them as well. Given the current situation, Brian, with uh, what's happening with Iran, what's happening mm -hmm. in the Red Sea, what are your concerns right now for a wider conflict? Well, uh, clearly, Iran wants to expand this conflict in an effort to gain some advantage, right? So, if they can. Um, get the U.S. drawn into uh, a confrontation uh, in the Middle East. They can paint uh, the U.S. as an enemy. That can be useful domestically because they do have these challenges with instability inside of Iran. Um, also, um, if they can somehow best the United States in some way, um, that also gives them a way to, again, show that they're, they're the big player uh, in the Middle East. And fundamentally, this is about a competition between Iran and the Saudi Arabian leadership and, and Israel. So if Iran can somehow uh, show that Saudi Arabia and Israel are weak, um, that they, actually Iran is the, the player that Gulf states should gravitate to as, as the leader in the region, that's really what Iran is trying to accomplish. What's China thinking right now? So China's taking advantage of this uh, series of confrontations by uh, su supporting Iran um, sort of through the back channels, right? So Iran um, is uh, selling uh, oil to uh, Chinese uh, agents and companies. So there's money coming to Iran as a result of its oil sales. Um, also, um, electronics, uh, other supplies are making their way to Iran, uh, mostly through commercial systems that are being sold to Iranian companies. But also, there's some direct you know, military cooperation that happens between China and Iran. So Iran is taking advantage of this opportunity to support its proxy, uh, which is Iran in this case, um, and also to watch how the United States operates and look for ways to maybe take advantage of the United States, especially in missile defense, uh, if it comes to a conflict uh, in the Western Pacific over Taiwan. That was Brian Clark, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and director of its Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. Next, with Friday's March for Life here in Washington, a conversation on the role abortion policy will play in the upcoming election with National Public Radio political correspondent Sarah McCammon. Uh, two years now into the post-Roe v. Wade era, what's the, the goal, what's the message today at the March for Life? What are organizers saying? 
Well, they've said their theme is going to be with every woman for every child. And I think that's a reflection of where the anti-abortion movement is headed in terms of its messaging. This is something I've been reporting on for a while now. You know, in the years leading up to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in uh, just a year and a half ago, the goal of the anti-abortion movement was to was to get there, was to overturn Roe, get enough senators, uh, conservative senators elected, get a conservative president who could nominate enough Supreme Court justices that would achieve that goal. Of course, that was something that Donald Trump promised when he was running for president. They achieved that a year and a half ago after decades of work. And now there's been a bit of a pivot in the messaging as we've seen the impact of that decision. Uh, that decision allowed state anti-abortion laws to go into effect all over the country. And we've seen now many, many cases of not just people being turned away for, for abortion, but in many cases, patients with severe medical uh, situations in states like Texas and Oklahoma and elsewhere uh, being told they can't get an abortion because of their state's abortion laws. And so uh, at the same time, um, I did some reporting in the, the first months after the Dobbs decision about how some of these anti-abortion groups that work with um, pregnant women and women who are who have uh, decided not to have abortions, they were getting an influx of calls from women seeking help in states like Texas who could no longer get abortions. Uh, so the landscape has changed, both in terms of the reality on the ground and the politics around abortion. And so we're seeing a greater emphasis uh, from the anti-abortion movement on talking about ways to support um, pregnant people and, and, and parents. Uh, at the same time, how that happens uh, is, is a political question. And they're also pushing for more abortion restrictions. You speak of the landscape. Uh, let me show viewers the, the physical landscape of Capitol Hill today. Uh, the March for Life set to take place on the National Mall. Uh, that's on the west front and down the west front of the United States Capitol. It's a snowy day here in Washington. Uh, for folks who have been to these uh, March for Lifes in the past, uh, usually well attended. What are organizers saying about attendance today in this storm here in Washington and also about who's going to be addressing the folks who show up today? Yeah, I've covered several of these over over the years. And, and as you noted today, I'm in New Hampshire on the Republican primary campaign trail. Um, but these marches typically bring thousands of anti-abortion demonstrators to the National Mall, um, sometimes a bit smaller crowd when it's cold. But uh, this year's speakers, uh, in line with that theme, they're bringing in someone who runs a, a crisis pregnancy center in Vermont. These are the centers that counsel women against abortion. They also provide sometimes services like um, diapers and baby clothes, but usually do not provide comprehensive reproductive health care. Usually they don't provide things like birth control. Um, other leaders like uh, Jim Daly with the Evangelical Group Focus on the Family, that's been an influential group that's been active in the anti-abortion rights movement for decades. And House Speaker Mike Johnson is also scheduled to speak along with, with several others. Um, these rallies typically do bring in, you know, heavy hitters in the Christian right and also uh, members of Congress, as we're seeing today, as well as uh, you see school buses full of often Catholic school kids come from um, often the D.C. suburbs and beyond. People come from all over the country, but it does tend to be heavily from from the Northeast, as you might imagine, because um, it's a little bit easy, easier to get there. This march has been going on now since the year after the Roe v. Wade decision, which I think really shows what a priority the abortion issue has been for this movement from the beginning. 
And I should note that C-SPAN's coverage of the March for Life this year, the 2024 March for Life, begins at noon Eastern today. Viewers can watch here on C-SPAN, C-SPAN.org, and the free C-SPAN Now video app. Uh, Sarah McCammon, you had mentioned that uh, Speaker Mike Johnson is going to be addressing the crowd uh, coming off a week in which two abortion-related bills were considered in the House. I want to show viewers just about a minute and a half of uh, Speaker Johnson talking about those bills on Wednesday. We believe that it's important to stand by families during unplanned pregnancies, and you heard uh, my colleagues here this morning articulate some of that. We want to make it easier for working mothers and, and moms and dads to start and raise a family. And that's why House Republicans are voting on two pieces of legislation this week. You just heard them described here briefly, the Supporting Pregnant and uh, Parenting Women and Families Act and the Pregnant Students' Rights Act. Across the country, uh, these pregnancy resource centers are doing heroic work. They're helping moms and, and dads, especially low-income parents, as they deal with the realities of pregnancy and the challenges of raising children. Across the country, state governments rely on these centers to provide life-changing emotional and material support, and that's support that empowers parents to bring their children into the world. We want to make sure those centers continue and can continue to serve families in every state and are not needlessly cut out of the funding process by the Biden administration. And you heard exactly what's happening here with TANF funds and the rest. We also want to make sure that moms who are in college aren't presented with a false choice of being a mom or being a student. If an expecting mom is pursuing her degree, we want to make sure that that uh, she knows that all the resources available to her so she can continue her studies, finish her degree while caring for her child. And those resources and that support is out there. House Republicans will continue to show the American people that we not only are a voice for the most vulnerable, but we also want to take action to protect them and their families. I was Speaker Johnson on Wednesday. Sarah McCammon of NPR, uh, what happened with that legislation uh, by the end of this week and, and what's their fate in the Senate? Well, you know, I think these two pieces of legislation are, again, they're part of this larger effort um, that I was talking about earlier to sort of reshape the messaging around the anti-abortion movement, to, to focus less, at least publicly, on abortion restrictions and more on the, the idea that um, while these groups oppose abortion rights, they want to help mothers and, and uh, families who are struggling with unintended or unwanted pregnancies. You know, the objection to this kind of legislation um, that and, and this concept is, is, again, that usually these kinds of centers that this legislation would fund don't provide a full spectrum of reproductive health care. They, they provide, they counsel women against abortion. They do often provide um, some limited support services, perhaps often referrals to Medicaid. Um, but, you know, a few of them have medical staff on, on hand, but most do not. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of these centers that that these bills would seek to fund. Um, and once again, I think this is sort of an ideological, this is part of a larger ideological debate for, for a long time. The anti-abortion movement has been trying to move public funding uh, toward these centers that align with, with their ideological goals. It's something the Trump administration tried to do uh, by reforming the Title X family planning program, uh, but it, it always receives pushback from, from Democrats uh, for those reasons. Speaking of Democrats and the White House, uh, also a focus on abortion, abortion access uh, this week. It's coming up on the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and as we've noted, uh, a little less than two years since uh, Roe was overturned. I want to show viewers from Monday, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, highlighting abortion access while she was 
uh, giving a speech in South Carolina. This is about 40 seconds. Today, in states across our nation, extremists propose and pass laws to attack a woman's freedom to make decisions about her own body. Laws that would even make no exception for rape and incest. And let us all agree, one does not have to abandon their faith and deeply held beliefs to agree. The government should not be telling her what to do with her body. That was the vice president on Monday, Sarah McCammon, on this push uh, by the White House, by the Biden campaign uh, ahead of the 2024 election. Right. And this is a big um, focus for the Biden administration now. Uh, next week on Tuesday, the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, which, of course, was overturned a year and a half ago, but is still um, a significant landmark anniversary for the abortion rights movement. Uh, President Biden has announced that, that he and First Lady Jill Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will be launching an initiative essentially focused on abortion rights. This is going to be leading up uh, to the rest of the 2024 campaign this year. It will involve rallies and other events as well as, as ad buys. They're going to be working closely uh, with the Democratic Party on this uh, and and they'll, they'll kick it off with a rally in Northern Virginia next week. And I think the reason is that we saw in the last two elections, in the, the 2023 election and the 2022 midterms, every time abortion was on the ballot, as it was in seven states in one form or another, voters uh, essentially voted to support abortion rights. And this is true even in some red states that had abortion relations abortion related ballot measures before the voters. You know, it's harder to disentangle the issue sometimes when you're looking at um, legislative races or certainly something as big as the presidential race where voters are thinking about many concerns, including the economy and immigration. But when the question is isolated and put before voters, uh, we've seen in, in response to the Dobbs decision, what looks like a real backlash. And exit polls in those two elections also indicated that this was a very motivating issue for Democratic voters, and particularly for key Democratic constituencies, uh, including women and younger voters. Democrats are well aware of that, and they plan to keep pushing the issue in 2024, as they did last year, I should say, leading up to, to even some of last year's elections, Democrats spent tens of millions of dollars on abortion-related ads, uh, more than four times what Republicans spent on that issue. So you can kind of see who thinks um, they have a political advantage around the issue at this point. You know, the, again, the, the landscape has changed so much with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's no longer sort of a hypothetical question. We see in many states the impact of these abortion restrictions. That was Sarah McCammon, political correspondent for National Public Radio. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.